I think about my clients and I think about the people in my life and I think about my own life and my own journey. And I think about that question, does my life have meaning? And, I, and, and to unpack it further, one of the things I'm drawn to is the, there are some implicit assumptions in the question, which is that if my life does not have those external outcomes which you spoke to, then it, um, it lacks meaning. But I suspect I then therefore lack a self-esteem or I therefore then lack worthiness. There's an implicit question of my worthiness in that question. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. I am Dan Putt. I've been thinking about my mom's shoes. After she passed, we went through the long and torturous process that everyone will experience after the death of a loved one, attempting to answer the question, what is to be done with her stuff? Now, most of what she had was either given away or thrown away. And there were certain things that were clenched tightly by myself or my sister or her partner, Tom. But there was one thing in particular that I really struggled to get rid of. An old, muddy and dirty, squished and used, tight-laced pair of Reeboks. Now, any of her things, like her clothes and her books, that stuff was really hard to sort through and getting rid of any of it was really, really difficult. But I've been wondering, what was it about those Reeboks that was so hard? I think I'm finally starting to understand. When I looked at those Reeboks, I didn't see the shoes that even Goodwill would not take. I saw so much more. I saw her long walks in the woods with those she loved, soaking up the beauty, wisdom, and aliveness of the greater world. I saw a boy and his mom walking on a muddy path, exploring the greater questions of life, love, meaning, and probably girls too. I saw long afternoons and evenings of her doing one of her favorite things, working in the garden, getting her hands and feet deep in the dirt and intimately feeling and connecting to life in the roots of the earth. I saw walks that she did at the end of her life when she knew the end was very near, where she would stop to look for the turtles that made her smile and connected her again to life. I saw in those shoes, not the stuff of her life, but the essence of her living. And I saw in those shoes a reminder of what her life meant to me and mine. I feel so often that a core question, one that persists in the background that so many clients bring to us is this. How do I know I matter? How do I know what I'm doing now will matter? In the thick of our lives, we can scramble to find the metrics that reassure us that indeed what we are doing really does count and it will matter. We can get lost in the things or the status or the titles the outward proof that what we're doing is important, but in the end, those are all left behind. What endures are the moments where we let go of what we needed to be or do and embraced who we are, embraced what matters most to us, like a toddler hugging their mother. And in the end, we'll all leave our own version of Reeboks. For some, it might be more stuff. For others, it might be fancier but they are just things. But what I want to know about the Reeboks that you leave is this. How did you choose to walk in them? Who did you choose to walk with in them? How true were you to them, to yourself? How will they feel about you when they see what you left behind? I'm so excited to bring back one of our teachers and friends, someone who has been so important in my own life and journey, Parker Palmer, to the Reboot Podcast. Parker joins his friend Jerry to talk more about Parker's latest book, one that I will admit I was terrified and excited when I saw the title, On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old. In this important conversation between dear friends, they explore a simple and small question, does my life have meaning? And instead, they find new questions to consider. 
How have I lived? How am I living? Enjoy. Eric Jacobs, Vice President of Product Development at Total Joint Orthopedics, Inc. There were a total of six people in the circle and two facilitators. And the valuable piece of that arrangement meant that there were two perspectives trying to guide the conversation through asking questions rather than pushing on the dialogue or the direction of the conversation and getting to watch ideas move around through a total of eight different perspectives and sort of drawing on everyone's experience individually and what they've observed uh, was very helpful in reframing my individual experience with how to deal with work stress of running an engineering department. And it put it in a broader context that sort of made it more objective to pick apart and understand. And getting that collective feedback, as well as that collective analysis week over week was very, very helpful. Being able to have an individual experience reviewed in a trusted peer group and be asked questions to put it back in a a new perspective uh, was, was very, very helpful and provided a a bigger, bigger space to think about it and a different way to deal with it emotionally than this is my problem. Oh, this is the same problem that everyone experiences and none of us know what we're doing. Knowing that I'm not alone and that the difficulties in trying to run the engineering department design the design of design, that is never easy. And that if if I'm experiencing difficulty with that, it's not because I'm bad at it. It's just, it's hard. Uh, And that, that was probably the singular most useful thing. Want to experience more conversations like these in your life? Consider joining a Reboot Circle. Our Circle's participants have called their circle their secret weapon. You'll gain more self-awareness and you'll know you're not alone in the challenges you face day to day. You'll find the same level of self-inquiry in a coach-facilitated cohort with six other leaders just like you. Apply at reboot.io slash circles. Hey, Parker, how are you? I'm good, Jerry. How are you doing? Good, good. So here we are again talking for our podcast and... um, you know, what prompted me to, to suggest this was um, reading an early draft of your new book, uh, uh, which is called On the Brink of Everything, and it's coming out in June. June 26th is the, is the release date. Wonderful, wonderful. And you, this was, I think, your 10th book. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, and as I've told you, I... It took me 10 books to do it, but I finally found a subject I know something about, aging. <laughs> well, see, now, now that's what I want to talk to you about. <laughs> I actually don't think the book is about aging. I think the book is about living. Yes, I agree. You know, I think it's, 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 it's a beautiful collection of essays um, from the perspective of one who has lived. And uh, looking with that lens. I'm, I'm glad you said that, Jerry, as often you, you say the thing I need to hear that reminds me of, of why I wrote the book in the first place. Because there's so much about aging in our culture that's about not living. It, it's about stopping to live, you know, stop, stop living or slow down your living or step aside from living. And I really wanted to write a book that says live on, live on. Um, as you know, one of my taglines in the book is old is just another word for nothing left to lose. So get out there and take some creative risks on, on behalf of the common good. And I really feel that way. I think age, I'll, I'll be 80 next February. I think age is a great privilege for one thing. Not very many people get to make it this far in our world. And I think with that privilege, you know, comes for me at least a sense of responsibility about investing myself in life uh, on behalf in support of other people. And of course, that all comes back uh, to me in life-giving ways. There are exceptions, obviously, where disability, serious illness shuts you down. But I've known people even under those circumstances who keep living right to the last moment. And so this is, you're right, this is a book about living. And, and, and I'm going to um, bring it back to um, two things before we even dive in. 
And that is the, the title itself, which uh, you lovingly uh, uh, describe how you stole it. <laughs> the brilliant, um, terrific, wonderful friend and teacher of yours, Courtney Martin. And right. Put that word in there, teacher. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Courtney, as you well know, is a little less than half my age. I started working with her when she was in her mid-20s and quickly identified her as someone from whom I could learn a great deal. And She called me a mentor. I called her a mentor from the beginning. I think mentoring is always a two-way street. And I think that, as, as you know from the book where I have a whole section on this subject, um, that reaching out to younger people is a very important part of living well as an older person. But the, the quick story uh, that I think you're inviting me to tell about where I got the title is that both Courtney and I write for On Being, a project with which you're also involved and beloved to both of our arts. And uh, we have weekly columns there. And one early morning, one winter morning here in Madison, Wisconsin, I was reading an essay, beautiful essay by Courtney, about her then, I think, two-year-old daughter, Maya, um, who was, whom Courtney was watching with great appreciation and amazement as Maya discovered the world. Everything was new. Everything was fresh. And Courtney has had this wonderful line, Maya is on the brink of everything. And as she went on to describe what she meant by that, I thought, my goodness, here I am. And then I think I was 76 or something like that. Uh, here I am on the brink of everything, too. I'm looking at the world through new eyes of appreciation and gratitude, the kind that, that you, the, the, the eyes that you open when you get to be older and you no longer assume that this is going to go on forever. So, you know, Maya is looking at everything afresh because she's not, never seen it before. I'm looking at everything afresh because I'm realizing I don't get to see it forever. And I want to see everything that's there in its truest and richest uh, and, and loveliest form. So uh, that's, where the, that's where the title came from. And I instantly wrote Courtney and said, that's going to be the title of this book I'm working on. Are you okay with me stealing it? And of course, she said yes. And um, one of the early essays in the book tells the story that I just capsulized. Well, I, you know, at the risk of projecting my own meaning into the story, I will tell you that... Uh, as I sit with the capacity to be on the brink of everything, um, I feel the, at a deep empathetic level, that ex same experience. Um, you and I have talked before about our, our um, parallel journeys through depression, through midlife, through the, the path. And I find myself these days often saying to people that I encounter, not unlike what you said to me both in, in books and in real life, that there is this place that one gets to on the other side of that dip, on the other side of that overwhelming sense that, there, that this is it, the ennui that can come in. And it is a refreshing new view and so you may not be seeing things newly for the first time, but you're seeing them anew. And, you know, what I just wrote down is the, the brilliant title and concept of uh, Suzuki Roshi's book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Mm -hmm. My dear friend, who's 79, was inspired by his dear friend, Maya, when she was two. And each of you have beginner's mind. Yeah, I thank you again for that. That came to me big time as I was writing this book and bouncing off of Courtney's essay. And as you know, in the book, the notion of beginner's mind pops up on several occasions. Because I think it's so important to strip away 
um, all of those screens and filters and assumptions that have probably been limiting your vision for a very long time, your vision and your, your action. And just start again, begin again, uh, as one of my essays is, is, is titled. I, we both know this as writers. There are so many times in writing where the only answer is begin again. And there are many times of, the, of that sort in, in life as well. So rather than banging your head up against a wall and keep trying to move that chapter forward that just won't move, um, look at what you've done, walk around it, walk under it and over it, and figure out a better doorway into that subject and begin again. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful image. <clears throat> It reminds me of when I was a kid and uh, whenever we were playing wiffle ball in the street or stick ball in the streets of Brooklyn and everybody would stop because we couldn't resolve the disagreement. Was the ball a foul? Was it in whatever? We'd stop and we'd say do over. Mm -hmm. And you you have an infinite number of do overs. Right. That's right. You know, you can you can start and stop the game all over, and you you can uh, really take another perspective on it. So, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I really thank you for that. And and for me, you know, in a sense, it it sort of dovetails in a way with this beautiful question um, that you explore in an essay called um, "Does My Life Have Meaning," uh, which is. Okay, and anybody's listening to the podcast may go, oh, we're going there. Yeah, we're going to go there. Yeah, we're going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, does my life have meaning? Um, I want to read to you what you wrote. Um, you say, as I go deeper into elderhood, the question rises in me more often than it did when I was young. Sometimes I'm able to affirm that I've made meaningful contributions in the least parts of my private and public lives. And at other times, everything I've done seems as flimsy and flammable as straw. If you've ever been downcast about the meaning of your life, you know that reassurance from others, no matter how generous, doesn't do the trick. The question of meaning is one all of us must answer for ourselves. So tell me about that. Tell me about that realization. Well, you know that um, as that chapter goes on, I decided it's not a good question. So I don't, I won't get too far ahead of the game, but let me, uh, a little spoiler alert that I end up saying it's not a good question, but I think, you know, certainly when I was younger, I was very, very driven by this desire to, to, to make a positive contribution, which I think most people want to do. But, but more than that, I was obsessed with, I guess, what I'd call the relation between means and ends. In other words, I had to calculate, figure out actions that I could take, things I could do that would result in positive outcomes for myself and and other people. And, you know, over the years, when when that's your calculus, like I've got to make that means ends relationship work and I've got to have evidence for it. I've I've never said that's that's meaningless or irrelevant question, but um, it'll break your heart if you, life will break your heart if you cling to that means-ends thing too tightly, because life is way too complicated to predict what's going to happen when we toss a certain piece into the maelstrom and then wait at the other end of the tube, hoping and anticipating that that result will come out as we, and as we predicted. A lot of intervening variables along the way. Um, lots of things that you have to accommodate and, and go with. And, and here we come again, I think, to begin again, uh, because 
when you don't get the result you want, what do you do? Do you throw up your hands and say, well, I, I just give up because, you know, I, I thought I had it all figured out, but turns out I didn't. I guess I'm no good at this job or I guess the world sucks or other people suck and therefore I won't, uh, I won't continue trying. So, you know, if, if you want to find a way to continually invest yourself in a world where we, we may like to maintain the illusion that we're getting results, but we often don't. And in fact, if we think about, if I think about my greatest heroes, they weren't people who got results in anything like the bottom line terms that business talks about or that foundation executives want when they give you a grant. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. invested his life in something incredibly important, which will always be with us in this white supremacist, white racist society. And that, of course, is justice for all, um, equity. And he didn't get the result he wanted. He gave his life for it, every ounce of his life, but he didn't get the result he wanted. Do we admire him the less for the fact that vast historical forces have been at work and vast inner life forces have been at work pushing against justice for all? Do we admire him the less for not achieving his desired result? No, of course not. We admire him for making the effort in the most full-hearted and full-bodied terms one can imagine. So I take great learning from the fact that every one of my, every one of the people I admire, whether famous or not so famous, can be seen in, through that same lens. Um, and so in, in some ways, I think over the years, what I've searched for is an equation that keeps me at it and, and yes, of course, makes me wish for results, but doesn't lead me to bet the farm on, on, on getting the results that, that I desire. Instead, the measure tends to be, am I giving myself to something that's worth giving myself to? Is it, is it life-giving? Mm -hmm. uh, and can I hold even defeat or disappointment or despair in a way that becomes life-giving for me and ultimately for, for others. I, I think your response to the question, which is not really an answer, but it's really a, um, an introspective unpacking of the question, is so beautiful and so well uh, thought through. And I think about my clients and I think about the people in my life and I think about my own life and my own journey. And I think about that question, does my life have meaning? And, I, and, and to unpack it further, one of the things I'm drawn to is the, there are some implicit assumptions in the question, which is that if my life does not have those external outcomes which you spoke to, then it, um, it lacks meaning. But I suspect I then therefore lack self-esteem or I therefore then lack worthiness. Right. There's an implicit question of my worthiness in that question. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you're using a measure of what makes you worthy that will never measure up, you have to ask yourself, what kind of psychological or spiritual game am I playing? Mm. Am I looking for a way out by setting a standard that I can't, can't possibly live up to, which then results in me feeling unworthy, which then results in me having, having an excuse for getting off the field and out of the game? Um, seems to me that that's the only question that you can ask. Um, people ask themselves other questions, like maybe I'm not smart enough, maybe I, you know, maybe if I choose, if I had a bigger grant, I could have done it, or 
if I had had smarter techniques or methodologies, I could have done it. But it seems to me that in the long run, we're setting ourselves up for failure when we adopt a standard for ourselves, not only for our work, but for ourselves around what you rightly call worthiness, um, that is inherently self-defeating. I've just... You know, I concluded a long time ago, there's enough forces in the world that want to defeat me in living as fully as I can. That I don't need to contribute to those forces myself, you know, yeah. or as I've written in other places, I refuse to conspire in my own diminishment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's absolutely key. And to loop back just briefly to Martin Luther King Jr. and other great leaders of movements, uh, Rosa Parks and Dorothy Day and Václav Havel and on and on. These were all people who took great risks because they refused to conspire in their own diminishment. Um, and to me, that's you know that's a reliable guide for living day by day by day. Am I making choices that are life giving for me and other people? Uh, or am I making choices that involve me conspiring in my own diminishment, in which case I'm robbing the world of the only gift that I really have to give, which is the fullness of myself, um, which I've now lost. I, 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 often, I often offer up to folks who come to me with similar kinds of questions the simple construct of striving for incremental progress that's directionally correct. Just step by step. And, and, and you know, as I, as I am hearing the two of us, I'm holding in my heart the, the uh, entrepreneurs with whom we work so closely, the young folks, whether it's in, who are committed to social justice and social change or the, or the folks who are committed to um, change in the business realm in a way that, in a sense, is so driven by those external metrics. And, um, uh, and, and I, am, I am moved deeply by your, your notion that there's a, there's a setup in the entire equation. And, and I'll acknowledge that a lot of the external forces, a lot of the external messages are actually antithetical to, to what you're suggesting right now, where, where they will use something, as, um, something like uh, salary as a metric of meaning, or they will mistake a, a notion of frenetic motion for right. meaning. Or they will mistake a uh, a sense of external validation that you know in the in the startup world that may come from someone blessing you and anointing your company with a large valuation, or the public buying your stock in some way or another. And and the only thing that I have come to, and I have been subject to all of those forces. I have uh, striven to be a prince of New York. Um, a master of the universe in Tom Wolfe's uh, world. And the only thing that I can really um, speak to, not by way of advice, is to simply say, how have you lived your life? Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. You know, I'll, 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 I'll share with you something um, that happened just yesterday in a, in a, in a session with a client. It was the first session, and we were just beginning to get to know each other. And, and I spoke about the work that we try to do and, and stealing a line from the poet David White. Um, we often speak of good work done well for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And I quoted that, and I said to the client, you know, oftentimes I'm able to put my head down on the pillow at night and say, good work, Jerry, done well for the right reasons. Careful there, buddy boy. Watch those reasons. <laughs> and he looked at me and it almost broke my heart. He said, I have never felt that is what he said. Never. And yeah. he is incredibly successful. 
And you're, you know, what one of the things that touches me about that story, Jerry, is that you're using your own prior experience of woundedness around that to try to help him heal from that wound. This whole wounded healer motif has always meant a lot to me because we all get wounded by this stuff. Um, my metrics have been different from those of the entrepreneurs you work with. That's not been my world, but I've had equivalent metrics, that's for sure. My, my word for what you're talking about is intentionality. I think, I think all I can control in my life is my intentionality, but I can do that only by maintaining a high degree of self-consciousness and honest self-honesty around what my intentionality is. Because we all know it's really, really easy to fool yourself about these things. It's, it's one of our master arts as human beings is self-deception. And, and so conversations of the sort that you, are, you have with your clients, conversations of, of the sort that have helped me so much, um, have, have all been around, well, let's, let's, start, let's test that out, you know. Uh, is this really... Is this really uh, a noble enterprise in terms of your intentionality? Not that it's ignoble, not that you're trying to do evil. Do, do your intentions contain the seeds of their own destruction? I think is always an interesting question. Thomas Merton, as you know, one of my heroes, I write about him at length in the book, um, wrote a book called Seeds of Destruction. And it was really about looking inward both as individuals and as a society about the seeds that are growing bad fruit that, that bring us down, poison plants that bring us down. So this whole intentionality question and whether it's by yourself or, or with others, I think it has to be both, uh, really, um, trying to discern your, your true intentions and trying to stay as true to them as possible. Hmm. Um, I can see the usefulness of non-delusional, non-self-lacerating, honest reflection of the positive and negative, the altruistic and neurotic, the, the, the good and the evil intentions, evil's probably too strong a word, behind all of the things that we do in the pursuit of that meaning, in the pursuit of that life with purpose. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you, 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 in, in this essay, you come to this beautiful spot where you're talking about, and I, I won't be able to pronounce his name, Cheslo Milos? Yes, right, Cheslo Milos. Ah, and his poem, Love, um, which... It's a wonderful poem. It really, it was just, it's a brief poem, but it was just such a wake-up call for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to read it because I have it in front of me. Love... Love means to learn to look at yourself the way one looks at distant things. For you are only one thing among many. And whoever sees that way heals his heart without knowing it from various ills. A bird and a tree say to him, friend. Then he wants to use himself and things so that they stand in the glow of ripeness. It doesn't matter whether he knows what he serves. Who serves best doesn't always understand. I just, I just adore that, that poem. How these poets do it in just eight or ten lines, I have no <laughs> idea. But, you know, because it takes me whole books to do it, shelves of books to do it. But I, I love that poem. Um, just starting with those lines, love means to, to learn to look at yourself the way one looks at distant things, for you are only one thing among many. Mm. And just that, that simple insight that you are one thing among many, and many is a mild word for, <laughs> for how many you are one thing among. I, I think I've told you before, Jerry, I'm, I'm not prone to 
to mystical experience, even though I'm drawn to writers who, who have that kind of experience. But I think I did have one, maybe two mystical experiences. And one of them was in the high desert up around Taos, New Mexico. I was walking across the desert at the foot of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. And I was in a place where you could see or hear nothing human-made. Um, I was all by myself. And all of a sudden, I had this kind of stunning insight that, call it what you will, the universe, the cosmos, was utterly indifferent to me and utterly accepting of me or forgiving of me. And I think I learned in that moment that indifference and forgiveness, indifference and acceptance are, are just breathing in and breathing out, you know? They, they're, the, they're two sides of the same thing. Um, I'm, not, I'm not special the way I like to think of myself as being special. Um, I am one thing among many, 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 many. And the universe is, in that sense, indifferent to me, but also profoundly accepting of me. And I, I don't know how to make the distinction anymore. But I do find that when I can reclaim that primal experience, which can never really be put into words. I'm sure you know what I mean. It was just in my bones. It was bone-deep knowledge that I can barely raise to articulation. And whenever I can return to that, that primal knowing, I'm at peace uh, with whatever I'm doing and with however it's going. And it actually liberates me to give more, not less. Mm. It, uh, it was beautiful. I, um, it makes me see this point in the horizon where indifference and acceptance, true radical acceptance, actually converge. And um, while it may be a struggle for my ego to give up my belief in my specialness, um, the liberating side for me is that it allows me to give up my belief in my awfulness at yep. the same time. Yep. Yep. And from that place to then go to what the, the, the poet um, brings the attention to is it doesn't matter to know whether or not you have meaning. It matters to know whether or not you've served. Exactly. Who serves best doesn't always understand. And a little earlier in the poem, whoever sees this way heals his heart. Mm. And that's the healing you're talking about in terms of the awfulness that we feel about ourselves. You know, one of the things that I say in the book, um, in the prelude to the book, is um, that I really, I'm surprised to be on the brink of everything. You know, I'm surprised to be looking straight ahead at my 80th birthday. Um, but I, I'm also surprised to find how much I like it. I like being here. And one of the reasons that I write about that I like being here is that from the brink, I have this full panorama of my life, past, present, and future. I can see all of that with a clarity that I think has often eluded me in life. And one of the things that I see looking back, which I so much value, is this intricately woven tapestry of life, which consists of many, 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 many threads. I mean, we all are pulling threads behind us as we go, and we're weaving them in to the threads pulled by other people and by events in, in the world, events in which we're involved or events that have implications for us, books we read, think, you know, things we do, et cetera, et cetera. And I can clearly remember days in my younger years when I thought, oh my God, 
I wove that ugly, ugly thread into my life. I wish I could just pull it out. Mm. But what I can see now is how everything belongs and how even the the dark threads, call them that if you will, Mm. contribute to the resilience of the fabric and to its beauty. I think it was Joseph Campbell who said, there is no work of art without the dark thread. Um, You need that contrast for other things to show up. And so I no longer want to pull those threads out. Um, It's not only that I can't, but it's that I value them in a new way. And they do have... They do have to do with resilience. Um, I think both you and I have been on journeys, as you mentioned earlier, with things like clinical depression that were very dark threads in our lives. You know, it it felt life-threatening, and it was indeed life-threatening. But um, there, there there was meaning and value in that experience once we survived it, once we came through. And once we were able to explore it and try to understand it and try to make meaning out of it, just as you made meaning out of it with this client you met this morning or yesterday, most recently, um, with whom you were using your own woundedness around some of his struggles in order to give him a different way to look at things. I mean, that's... That's about not trying to pull a thread out of your life, not trying to deny that that fabric is your fabric, not t- trying to pretend that you are not all of the above, you know, as, as you and I have said to each other from time to time, we are all of the above. Um, but it's about um, serving. And it doesn't matter whether he knows, I'm reading the poet now, who he serves or what he serves, who serves best doesn't always understand. And I just think that's absolutely true. Have you, have you not had the experience? I certainly have. Mm-hmm. Of people coming to you and saying, thank you so much for what you said to me that evening that we met five years ago. I can't even remember the person. I can't remember, I can't remember the meeting. I can barely remember the night. <laughs> <laughs> right. I can't remember what I said. But that person will say, you really changed my life by paying attention to me and by saying something that I've been thinking about ever since. Yeah. Well, you didn't know you did that. And that's how you served best. Yeah. You know, that could well be one of the most important things you've ever done. Yeah. The, uh, thank you for that. It, it, it comes, it, it brings to mind a, uh, a notion, and I'll, I'll have mangled this a little bit because I'm not remembering it precisely, but I have been told that Carl Jung used to refer to the slender threads that connect it all. Mm-hmm. And your imagery of those threads brought to mind this notion of the dark thread is the light thread, and the thread it's just the threads that connect everything. And, and that brings to mind... Something last summer I was traveling in Tibet um, with um, one of my favorite human beings on the planet, a, f- a fellow named Al Doan, who's actually been on the podcast. And Al and his wife, Drea, um, uh, came on the trip and they're Mormon. And many evenings we would sit and we would talk comparative religion, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, he gave me the, the, the imagery of tender mercies. And, and I think that to link these two concepts together, tender mercies are the, are the ways in which the divine, whether or not you believe in the mystical, shows up in a way, the way it showed up for you in the mountains outside of Taos or... Um, you know, just in the simple way in which our our lives, Parker, became right. right. Simple emails, hey, you know, or or a connecting point between you and Courtney, which has become 
a, a deep and rich and multivaried thread in the fabric of your lives. Right. Um, and, and I think that when we deny the dark thread, we close ourselves off to the tender mercies. Absolutely. Absolutely we do. I mean, to deny the dark thread is to say, I don't want to look at any part of my life or anybody's life that has the dark thread in it, is to really limit your range of vision. Uh, you know, you, you cut your perspective down to about 10 degrees, if that. Um, and, and so em embracing the dark thread, acknowledging and accepting the dark thread, um, is to open your eyes and to be aware that those tender mercies may come with the first flower of spring, the first cardinal of spring, as they have done for us here in the, in the Midwest, where we had a long, hard winter and a very cold spring. Um, as the smile of a child, the kindness of a stranger, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Things that just kind of lighten your life and do, in fact, provide those tender mercies. I like that. I like that phrase a lot. I, th I think, too, that when we put our pursuit of purpose and meaning through the filter of what is the outcome by which that will be measured, what is the external output, we are, in effect, denying the threads that actually exist. We right. are, in fact, denying the ways in which we are in service. Even if what our service is nothing more than getting in a yellow cab in New York City and saying to the driver, how are you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I, I, I did that shortly after the Muslim ban. And the driver, um, the the... Let's, let's use proper language. The attempt to ban people from seven different countries that were predominantly Muslim. Right. And I, did, I said that to a driver. And he looked at me through the, the rearview mirror. And he said, inshallah. Yeah. 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 And I heard yeah. this wonderful little story about having been a doctor in Pakistan and having to be forced out because yeah. of opposing the government and bringing his children, who are now teachers in New York. Exactly. And, and probably wonderful teachers. And I, my life was better. Yeah. And hopefully his life was better. And yeah. I will never forget that little tender mercy, yeah. or that little slender thread, yeah. or that little experience. Yep. that made a difference. I, I did something the other day that still makes me glow uh, because it's often when you have the wit to extend a tender mercy that you benefit as much as when one is extended to you. And I learned this one from my wife, Sharon, whom you know um, very well. The and smarter a half of the two of you. Yeah, the smarter and the prettier for sure. Oh, sure. <laughs> so I, I was in the men's room at, I think, the Detroit airport. I've been in so many lately, I'm not sure. And um, Airports, not men's rooms. <laughs> Remember, I'm almost 80. <laughs> I mean, I have all of the above. Man. I'm not denying any of it. So um, there was this attendant in there. Half of the urinals were closed down as he was doing this hard job of cleaning them. I mean, the, the unwashed public leaves such terrible messes, you know. I, I know because when I was a kid, I worked on the Lake Michigan beach near Chicago, and my job was to clean public restrooms. And I, I grew distrustful of the great unwashed American public at that time. <laughs> How I ever bounced back, I don't know. A lot of therapy, I guess. <laughs> anyway, as I was leaving, because the, the urinals on my side of the restroom were sparkling clean, I, and I am able to do this. I pulled a $20 bill out of my wallet, and I handed it to him, and I said, I just want to thank you for keeping this place so clean for travelers like me. It really means a lot. And he looked at me and he, he said, uh, 
uh, I don't think I can take that. And I said, of course you can. You've earned it. You've earned my gratitude. So please accept this as just the thank you of one guy passing through who's grateful for the hard work you do. And I just left. And he had this smile on his face that was just um, so genuine and so humanly connective. So it's, it's so often, you know, one of the great wounds in our world is people feeling unseen and unheard. And um, to see them and hear them is the, the easiest and one of the most rewarding things we can do. And I'll just say one more thing, Jerry, that we've talked about before, but I think it has a place here, loop back into this larger subject of getting hooked on outcomes rather than just on, you know, what Gandhi called these expressive acts. These are not instrumental acts, asking the cab driver how he is and speaking about uh, you being in grief about America's posture on people on countries that are predominantly Muslim or me giving this man a well-earned gift for his efforts. These are expressive acts. They're not instrumental. They're not meant to get us anywhere in the world or achieve an outcome. But when we get hooked on outcomes, what happens time after time after time is that we take on smaller and smaller tasks because they're the only ones you can get outcomes on. So as I've often said um, in our conversations and elsewhere, we're no longer interested in this country in educating children. We're just we're just interested in getting kids to pass tests. And that's not the same as educating children. You have a daughter who's a very fine teacher. You know this, she knows this, all good teachers know this. And all good teachers are fighting the fight of their lives these days against high stakes standardized testing. It's not that they don't, you know, it's not that they or their kids shouldn't be held accountable for learning. But kids learn at different pace, paces, they learn in different ways, they have very different starting points. And if we're going to educate, then we need to ease up on measuring and get back to treasuring. Mm. Uh, I think there's just millions of kids in this country who are yearning to be treasured rather than measured. And the measuring comes from people saying, I got to achieve outcomes, so I'll stop caring about educating a child, and I'll care only about getting them to pass tests. And if I can't get them to pass tests, honestly, I'll sneak into the building at night, I'll change the answers on the test sheets, and I'll get a merit raise, or the school will be allowed to, to stay in business. That you know, People are serving time in prison for doing that kind of thing. But not everyone who's done it is in prison. Some of them are still doing it. So this is a high-stakes business um, where, where we are in this matter of outcomes, not only for ourselves, but for the larger society. I, I think your, your, your example is, is deeply moving. And, and to go back to the Detroit airport bathroom for a moment, that was, I hear the expressive act the Gandhian expressive act. And I hear it as an expression of kindness. And sometimes to go back to this core purpose of, does my life have meaning? The question is, are you kind? Yes, absolutely. It's in a sense, this kindness, because kindness may be the way in which you are called to serve in yeah. moment, incrementally day by day. I, I, I agree with that. For me, right alongside that word kindness, it's doing a dance with the word gratitude because basically I was grateful for that man. And, um, you know, there I was benefiting from his labors while watching him labor on the other side of the bathroom and just realizing that he had work that, I couldn't do day in and day out. Um, I, I would become so demoralized, and my sense of gratitude led him to do, led me to do what I did. So uh, it's it's an it's an interesting 
it's an interesting place to be. And, and I, I, I know that it's not only possible, but it's highly desirable to cultivate gratitude at earlier stages of life. Um, and wise people do that. I don't think I've been lacking in that. But I have noticed as I've aged that my sense of gratitude for everything just ups. And what's interesting is that when you, I mean, life is complicated, right? When your gratitude rises, so does your outrage at things of the sort that impinge on the lives of that Pakistani cab driver and this gentleman working in the men's bathroom at the Detroit airport, the, the racism, the xenophobia, the economic inequalities, the, the stagnation of wages for the working poor. Um, you know, my outrage at the forces that are keeping all of that in place is, is amped up by the gratitude I have for people who are doing that kind of work. It, there's something about kindness and about gratitude mm-hmm. that makes us feel more deeply the ecosystem in which we're embedded. Right. And, you, and you just lace your fingers and there's an interconnectedness. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's not like, I'm, no, I'm, I, I know I've worked hard and all of that. I know that I've you know, spent millions of hours writing and getting educated and creating projects and programs. But I haven't really done, done all this on my own. Mm-hmm. I've done it with a massive support system, mm-hmm. which I'll just call the ecosystem of life. Mm-hmm. And um, gratitude and kindness, I think, really, uh, really intensify our understanding of being embedded in that ecosystem. I mean, I'll go back to your, to, to your story for a moment. There's an act of gratitude and kindness in that gentleman's care and concern that he took to cleaning that side of the bathroom. Yep. And there was an act of gratitude and kindness in your acknowledgement of that, regardless of whether or not you'd given him $20. Right. And, and there's a mutuality of that experience, which I'll, I'll interject the word community into your ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in that moment, um, it didn't, your specialness and your awfulness no longer um, existed. You were one of many. Right. He was one of many. Right. And we were one, ones of many together. Right. Right. Absolutely. We're all in this together. And that's, that's good news. And, 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 and so the question doesn't, bec- isn't, as you say, the question isn't, does my life have meaning? Is can we be all in this together? Can we be human together? Right. Uh, absolutely. Seems like a simple question. Seems like it would have a simple answer, but I don't know. Somehow we've complexified it in this country and, uh, we, we need to help each other come up with the right answers to that because I think a lot rides on, on them. Well, I think, you know, here again, this is one of many beautiful subjects that you play with and, and um, really uh, explore well in this book. And, and I just want to thank you for that, for the kindness of that. Thank you, Jerry. It's, it's just a such an honor and pleasure always to talk with you and and to have talked with you over the months and years when we've both been working on our own stuff. I'm looking forward to yours coming out and uh, maybe I'll start running my own podcast by then and interview you. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) (laughs) That would be the (laughs) album. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and I just appreciate you and Uh, You take care of yourself. Thank you. Always an honor, buddy. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcasts 
to listen to all three seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? Can any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the resting soul of Galileo, king of night vision, king of insight. Sterling. I'm a founding partner here at BGF Ventures. We're based in London and we're a 200 million pound early stage venture fund. I would recommend uh, Reboot Bootcamp, hands down. I, if you're on the edge and thinking about it, I would just do it. You'll, you won't regret it for a second. I think my key, my key reflection from the Bootcamp weekend is that you can't remove from the work that we do on a daily basis is, is incredibly human. So it's not sitting in front of a computer. You know, we are, we are interacting with founders and with teams and making decisions that impact people's lives. So it is uh, imperative and, it, and it, it's your responsibility to invest in yourself if you care about the companies that you invest in to make that dynamic successful. Join us for the 2019 VC Bootcamp this January 24th to 27th in Boulder, Colorado. Over this long weekend, you'll work with the Reboot team and your peers to uncover your authentic leadership style, helping you to become the best investor, board member, and supporter you can be. To learn more and apply, head to reboot.io slash VC Bootcamp.